My apologies, David. I'm apparently anxious to introduce our speaker for this morning. It's our privilege to have as our guest a longtime friend of this ministry, as well as a longtime supported missionary. Uh, for many of you in the room this morning, uh, Paul Hessman and his family are by no means strangers. Uh, you've heard him speak on numerous occasions, maybe even as often as this past Wednesday when he and his family were there for our panel discussion. I had the opportunity to meet him a few months ago when he came by to see David, and we had a few minutes to talk, and since then we've had uh, many more minutes to talk, and uh, it's been uh, my pleasure, thoroughly enjoy our conversation together, and learning what it is God has placed on his heart and where he's uh, seen fit to, to put him at different times, different places. Uh, at the end of it all, I think we described it um, last Wednesday night, when, when you hear of others' stories in Christ, it seems the, the world gets smaller. It's not as big. It's not as, as unfriendly of a place. The Lord is, is strange in the way he plays matchmaker. And where he assigns his different uh, men and women. But this man's experience and his accomplishments uh, are, are not only wide, but, but they are deep, I am learning. And uh, in addition to the degrees that, that Paul holds, both foreign and domestic, he's been able to use his gifts to teach in many uh, academic settings uh, but what I think is most significant, the way I'll introduce this man, for seven years, Paul Hessman's faithfully served uh, the congregation of a local church in Eden, North Carolina, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then following another call, spent the better part of two decades serving the people of South Africa as a missionary with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This man has spent his life teaching a witness to what it is that God has said to go do. Uh, so it's our privilege uh, to be able to hear him this morning. He has his family with him. Well, most of them, Penny and uh, the two boys, uh, Joshua and Michael, are here with us this morning. Their oldest, uh, Catherine, is in Charlotte. Is that correct? And they are, uh, at, at the moment, currently living in Apex. But please join me in welcoming our Speaker this morning, Paul Hessman. Good morning, church. It's uh, such a privilege. Thank you, Pastor Isaac. It's so awesome to be here with you. Thank you so much for, for supporting us for that time. We, I think we came around here in 2001, shared the vision that God put in our hearts about ministering and planting churches and leading to people of Christ in South Africa, and you've been faithfully supporting us for that period of time. Thank you for the opportunity of sharing this morning. It's, it's so awesome to, to preach and share God's Word. The headlines read, Enemies for Peace. And on Wednesday, the 13th of December, 1989, prisoner number 46664, more commonly known as Nelson Mandela, had the first of three meetings with the president of South Africa, F.W. de Klerk, to discuss the future of South Africa. The meeting itself took, took place in de Klerk's office in Cape Town, 
And not too long afterwards, on the 11th of February, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. And this was a, a turning point in the history of South Africa. And there are those various turning points we find not only in the world, but also in Scripture itself. And one of those turning points is in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10. And we'll realize very quickly that we are reading about one of the most seminal moments in the history of the gospel. It's a moment of, of radical change. It's a moment of revolution. It's a moment of transformation. A moment, I think, that would radically change the trajectory of the gospel forever. You know, as you read it, and you can easily read it very quickly, it's a wonderful narrative, it's a story, but we've got to read it slowly and realize the momentous thing that's happening when you have a Gentile or the nations and the gospel going to the nations itself. At first, it involves two men from opposite spectrums, just like Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk, two men who are uh, Come, two men who come together across a wide geographic and cultural and ethnic distance. There's an offer of hospitality, and there's a sharing of a, an idea, a new idea that God is impartial, that He has sent His Son, and He has summoned the world to declare their allegiance in His newly installed King, King Jesus. At another level, it's certainly a totally profound moment as two people come across one of the deepest ethnic and cultural divides of history. It's the moment where they share God's love and God's grace, and something radically happens. It allows the church, the small fledgling church that has heard the gospel and knows the gospel to now offer the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to the world. It's a moment of saying that you belong. It's not a moment of exclusion, but it's a moment of inclusion. The gospel goes to the nations. You must remember way back in Acts chapter 1, at the very beginning, and, and uh, where the disciples asked Jesus, said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And their sense of what the kingdom is about is still somewhat confused. They haven't figured it out. And Jesus says, wait. Notice how he responds. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and you will be empowered to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I think I heard that Fuquay Verena is, constitutes the ends of the earth. Somebody <laughs> said that somewhere. They were thinking of a small piece of ground in Israel, and, and Jesus is thinking of the world. You see, the summons that would go out is not merely the kingdom that is localized to Israel, but it's a kingdom that would encompass the entire world. Christ is to be proclaimed as the king of the world. The gospel is for the world. He will summon the nations to the obedience of faith, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. And so as you read the story from Acts 1.8, and I don't have time this morning to, to kind of look at the trajectory of faith, of how it moves, but I do know this, that in Acts 1.8, the Spirit is given expressly for one purpose, and that is to empower you to open your mouth and proclaim Jesus as Lord. 
Everything else is kind of on the fringe, you might say, when it comes to the Spirit's ministry. We can look at Romans and Acts, and, I mean, Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But if all that we had was just the book of Acts, we would realize that the primary purpose of the Spirit's ministry in our lives is for us to embolden us, to empower us, to communicate that Jesus is Lord in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So in Acts chapter 10, we have a, a narrative, a story of, and there are eight scenes, and it would take eight sermons, but I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to compact it this morning. There are eight scenes, and I, I don't have time to, and I wish we had time to, 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 to bring it out, to exegete it, but eight scenes. So I'm going to briefly refer to those eight scenes. And here's the first one in verses, chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. The Spirit of God is at work in the world, is how I describe this scene. The Spirit of God is at work in His creation. It is faith, on the other hand, to see it from the human side. It is faith searching, searching for the Creator God, searching for meaning, searching for identity, searching for relationship. And so the story is about a city called Caesarea, it's named, as you can tell, after Caesar, Caesar Caesarea. And there we have a man called Cornelius. He is a part of the occupying forces. He's a Roman. You must remember that the narrative of Israel, if you want to see the eschatology of Israel, you go to the book of Daniel, and in Daniel you find out those four kingdoms, and the four kingdoms are Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greeks, and the Romans, and that fourth one now is occupying the Holy Land. They were the notorious occupiers, and as much as the British occupied the rest of the world at one point in India, in Africa, I'm not equating the British to the Romans, please. I'm certainly not doing that. But what you do have is that the Romans are occupying the land, and yet there's a soldier, a centurion by the name of Cornelius, whom God has worked and is working. There is a pantheon of gods that were available to him. They were Greek gods, and of course the Romans took over the Greek gods and named, renamed them and made them as their own. And so he could select from all of those gods, and yet it's amazing that his heart would be drawn to the God of the slaves. The God of the slave nation, that Yahweh would by his spirit convict his heart, and this man does not become a proselyte. So he doesn't go under circumcision. He doesn't undergo circumcision to become a proselyte. So he's on the margins, you might say, of Israel. He's not Jewish. He's Roman. He's a soldier. He's a man who's hardened by war, and yet the Spirit of God has softened him so that he has heard who Yahweh is, and he's followed the narrative of what God is doing in the nation. And he's searching. He's generous. He's a man who's looking out for the poor, who's willing to give of his resources, his time, and his energy. And yet, at the same time, he's a man of prayer. Isn't that a wonderful balance? It's, it's, it's the human side, and it's the God side. It's what the Ten Commandments is all about, right? Two are toward God, and the others are toward our fellow beings, our, the rest of creation itself. And, and this man, in searching, the Spirit of God 
sends a messenger, and it's an angel who comes. And when the angel comes, he declares to him this, and I think it's a marvelous thing that the angel declares to him. The angel says to him that your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. I don't think that is said of any Jewish person in the Gospels. It's said of a notorious Roman soldier, a member of the occupying forces, and yet God has heard. He's searching. He doesn't know the story. He doesn't know about Jesus. And God is about to work to bring somebody to come and share with him the marvelous gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is at work in the world. People are searching for faith, for identity, for meaning, for relationship. Way back in 1943, a young young Muslim girl by the name of Halima Aku was on the way to see her dad. Her dad was one of the merchants. He was one of the storekeepers. And as she got closer to town, she heard from the shopkeepers that something had happened. And she was sent back home to bring the rest of the family. And obedient, she went back, called the family. They went into town. And then they broke the news, the sad and tragic news, that their father, a shopkeeper, had suffered a massive heart attack and had died. The family, as Muslims do, bury They don't wait long. They don't wait a week. They rarely wait a day. They usually bury the same day. They had extended family in another town two hours away. So they sent word out, please come help us bury our our father. He has died. They waited the rest of that day, but there was no help from the rest of the family two hours away. The next day, with the help of the local Zulu community, they buried their loved one. The family decided they would move to where they had extended family. And young Halima Aku, who had never gone to school, could not read or write, found herself now at the age of 13 being a nanny, being a housemaid, taking care of her older brother's kids. And so for the next three years, that's exactly what she did. She washed and she cleaned. She couldn't do anything else. She had never gone to school, could not read or write. And that, back in that day, women were groomed to be mothers and housewives. At the age of 16, she said, enough is enough. I'm out of here. She managed to get a train ticket, and uh, the, uh, the city of Johannesburg, about five hours away, was a booming metropolis. Gold had been discovered. People from Europe were coming in to make their fortunes, and so she thought, maybe my life will be better if I run away from home and go to Johannesburg. She got a train ticket, and before you know it, she was in Johannesburg. She was 16. She was a farm girl. She was young, naive, looking for security and looking for love. And before long, she met a man. She became pregnant. The story goes, and I don't have time to develop the story, but over the next few years, she had four boys, And there were ins and outs from two different fathers, and none of them actually took care of their boys. And then in 1963, she met an Italian guy. He had jet black hair and olive skin, and so she thought, maybe, maybe now this one will take care of me and my boys and will be the man that I need in my life. She's still looking for security. Before long, she becomes pregnant, and so she tells him, I'm with your child. And he says, oh, I didn't tell you. I have a wife and kids and don't have room for other kids. In 1963, she gives birth to her fifth son. She names him Mustafa Muhammad. 
I'm that fifth boy. Mom raised us in a Muslim community. And back in, in 1963 and in the 60s and 70s in South Africa, South Africa was racially divided. There were those who belonged. And if your skin color was white, you belonged. You were described as white. And then there were the rest who were described as what they were not. They were described as non-white. For those like myself who were mixed, were in between, we were described as not belonging. We were the non-white community. We grew up very poor, had very little, didn't have much. Remember, my earliest memories were uh, being in a house, a two-room house, not a two-bedroom house, a two-room house. And in that two-room house, mom had a cold stove on which she would cook. And uh, mom would boil water, and we had a galvanized zinc tub. And that's how we washed and cleaned ourselves. No plumbing, no inside, electric no inside plumbing, no electricity. Everything was outside. We had very little. But I do remember one thing, though, as being in school one day, I, I heard one of the teachers say that when we died, God would take a pair of balances and put our good works on the one side and our bad works on the other side. And if our good works outweighed our bad works, we would go to heaven. And you know, the more I thought about that, as a 10-year-old, I realized I would never make it, that I just could not do more good works than bad works. So I went back to what I knew. I'd gone to Madrasa. Madrasa is a religious school where you learn to read the Quran in Arabic. And I went back to that thinking maybe somehow, in some way, I would have peace in my heart that if I died, I would go to heaven. But there was absolutely no peace there whatsoever. I was searching. Even though what that man told me was not correct, I really believe the Spirit of God used it to, to create within me a thirst and desire to know God and to find meaning, to find identity, not in myself, but in God. God is at work. There are many around you who are searching. You can't see that. Sometimes it comes through in the circumstances, in the slip of the tongue, what they might say, but... God is at work in his world by his spirit, and there are individuals who are searching. Scene two. The spirit of God is at work preparing you and me for mission. But in order for us to be engaged and involved, our faith must be tested. We must be stretched beyond our comfort zones. And so... Cornelius is obedient to the call, and he sends for someone, and he sends some messengers. But on the other side, there's somebody who is being prepared. And as you know the story, it is, it is God preparing Peter, preparing him for what is going to happen, preparing him for the mission to the Gentiles. Cornelius is praying. God sends a messenger. Peter is praying. God sends a vision. And it's amazing that this vision is about heaven itself opening up. Now think about that phrase. It is at the baptism of Jesus that the heavens open up. Stephen in his sermon in Acts 6 says, heavens opened up. It is at the transfiguration where we, it's almost the curtains of heaven are being pulled open so we can see some eternal reality. And so for Peter, this is a momentous occasion for him. 
He is a Jewish man from the top of his head to the tip of his toes. And his identity is found and rooted in his Jewishness. That is Torah. That is circumcision, the law, Sabbath, and the dietary restrictions. And so at first, as you read the story about this curtain coming down, and in it were all manner of reptiles and creeping things, and the, and the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You might say, well, if I was there, I would just go ahead and do the thing. It's not just about diet. Diet is at the tip of the iceberg. You see, diet for the Jewish community is about identity. It's about being the people of God. Part of being the people of God is the law. It is Sabbath. It is circumcision. And it is keeping separate from the pagans, the nations, the goyim, as the Hebrew word says. And so it's not just a matter of diet. It's a matter of something that goes to the identity of who he is. And Peter's not willing to give up his identity. He says, no, Lord. Isn't that kind of an oxymoron of sorts? No, Lord. As he goes against what is directly a radical vision that God gives him. A momentous occasion. If God is going to use you and me in mission to engage the world we certainly must be stretched beyond what you constitute as your identity. I think there are times when we are wrapped up in what we think of ourselves. And if we would take a piece of paper and write down the things that constitute our identity, we have to make sure that they don't prevent us from engaging the world with mission. Your identity is greater than your language. Your identity is greater than your culture. It's greater than your family heritage, your legacy. Your identity is rooted in the gospel, should it not be? I'm not, say, I'm not saying that we don't have culture, because we do. We have to live in a world of culture. And yet at the same time, we must be stretched. We must be willing to take a deep, long look inside and say, what are the prejudices that prevent me from reaching out? What are the things that prevent me from sharing the gospel? What are some of the hindrances in which I hold people at arm's length because they are maybe different from who I am? We live in, Penny and I came back to the U.S. in July, August of last year, and we found out we've come back to a very, very, very divided United States of America. It seems like we're more divided now than ever. I came to the U.S. in 1984 as a student to go to Piedmont Baptist College, and it seemed like back then there was far more unity than there is now. I do know that the media tends to make it bigger and blow it out of proportion, and social media does that. I understand that one isolated instance now becomes common. It's happening everywhere, and we realize it's not. But there is somewhat of a divide the gospel brings together, does it not? It's at the very heart of the gospel to bring together those from different ethnic, ethnic and racial backgrounds. The, the intent of the gospel is to root out in the very heart of Peter that ethnic and racial prejudice so that he can be embold, empowered to share that Jesus is Lord. 
Peter's perplexed. He doesn't know what the vision means. But God is at work because God has sent these in scene three. That's all about that as far as I'll get. The Spirit of God directs and empowers for mission in verses 17 to 20. So while Peter's pondering the vision, in verse 19, the Spirit says to him, Behold, Peter, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. God is in the process of preparing you and me to engage those who don't know Jesus Christ. So for me, that was Charles and Niner Hoblitz. They had met at Piedmont Bible College way back then, and they fell in love and felt God was sending them out to the mission field, initially to the country of Mozambique. But in the 1970s, Mozambique was embroiled in a civil war. It was communism versus uh, freedom, democracy. And so they couldn't stay long, and God redirected them to the city of Johannesburg, where they would meet a young 13-year-old Muslim boy who didn't know Jesus Christ. They would look beyond the dark skin, probably knowing full well he's not white, you know. Looking beyond that, they embraced us. And I remember hearing the gospel for the first time through their ministry, and, and the story about how I got to the church will take too much time, but I, I got to their church, I saw a film for the first time, and I heard the gospel, and the Spirit of God convicted my heart of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and I cried out that Sunday morning in 1976. I said, Jesus is Lord. You see, heaven, so often we think heaven as a, de we, we often think of heaven as a destination, but it's not so much of a destination as is it is a relationship. That you are to confess Jesus as Lord brings about that relationship. What's in the heart is made real by a proclamation of the lips. So after searching, I came to know Christ because God had prepared Charles and Nina Hoblitz who had come Charles was from Baltimore, Maryland, and Nina was here from North Carolina. And they came prepared, ready to engage those that God was already at work in. God is calling you to engage those in whom His Spirit is already at work. Scene 4, verses 21 to 23. The Spirit of God breaks down barriers to mission. The other way of putting it is that faith invites and welcomes. It's interesting to see where Peter is. Peter's living on the town in a coastal town called Joppa. He goes to Caesarea, but in Joppa he's living with a tanner, a person who handles dead things, right? And of course, that was taboo. That was, that was not kosher because you were not suppo supposed to come into contact with something that was unclean, and that's where he is living. And when the guests come, when the men come, he invites them into his house. Jewish people don't invite pagans into their home. There's a separation, and yet he invites them. So faith invites and welcomes God has brought the nations to Raleigh and Fuquay, Verena and Apex. 
Having three major universities here certainly does help in bringing the nations. Having the research triangle here certainly does help in bringing the nations. And so you don't have to go to India, just go to Costco. You don't have to go to China or Hong Kong or, 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 or Thailand or, uh, or Vietnam. Just go to Aldi's and you'll find them there too. The nations are here. And you will rub shoulders with those. They might be on the college campus. They might be your neighbor. And if you go to Kerry, it seems like most of Kerry is from India. They are here. God has brought them, and God is at work. His sovereign spirit is at work in their hearts and lives, drawing them to him, and we must warmly embrace and welcome. It doesn't take away from who you are. Your willingness to engage cross-culturally doesn't dilute your identity at all. It enriches your identity. So I have a cross-cultural marriage. We're from the different sides of the track in many ways. And we found out over the last 32 years now that, that, that it doesn't divide us, that rich heritage actually enriches both sides. And so our boys and our daughter Catherine is enriched by that. Faith invites and welcomes. We don't hold them at arm's length, we draw them in. Scene five. The Spirit of God motivates confession of past prejudice. The Spirit of God motivates confession of past prejudice. From a human side, faith confesses past prejudice to advance the mission of God. And notice what Peter says. He says in verse 27, as he talks with Cornelius and all those who were there, he says, as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with with or to visit anyone of another nation, the pagans, but God. Don't you love that? But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, you might read that very quickly, but I read that as a confession. He says, this is who I am. This was rooted in my identity. And but as part of my identity is to stay separate from you, to hold you at arm's length, to, re- to say that you're not on equal standing with me. But I've, been, I've re- realized now through heaven's opening up that I have been a person of prejudice. And I'm willing to confess that here publicly to you, he says to them. That takes an awful amount of faith and humility, doesn't it? and a dependence on the Spirit of God, and a willingness to say, it doesn't matter what others think, I'm going to follow God's Spirit. And part of that is to root out any form of racial or ethnic bias that would retard or prevent or hinder the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ from moving on to the worlds, to the nations. So the Spirit of God motivates confession. Scene 6. The Spirit of God is present. We've seen that, but here it's obviously so. The Spirit of God is present in mission, and faith on the human side recognizes the presence of God. And notice where it comes from. It comes from the lips of Cornelius. 
It is a pagan who recognizes that God is at work. So look at verse 33. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here, here's the phrase, in the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. He notice, he, he realizes this is a tremendous moment, but it's divinely orchestrated. So much so as I go back to that day in 1976 when I met Charles and Nina Hoblitzen, I as a young Muslim boy heard the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was a divinely orchestrated moment. God is in the habit of divinely orchestrating missions moments so we can communicate the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to those who have not heard, or to those who need to hear it again. I don't know what God is doing in your heart and life this morning. I do know this, that in this very, in the seventh and eighth scene, it is Peter who proclaims and shares the gospel. So I want to read that part of it, because it's, it's just, it's beautifully stated. In, so in chapter 10, look if you would, in verse 34, in verse, let's see, verse, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God, there it is, raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he has commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who had heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even among the nations. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Baptism now, after they had heard and believed and the Spirit of God had come upon them, baptism functions as a wonderful symbol that they had died to an old way of life, and they'd risen in new life. It symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it also symbolizes inclusion. 
You see, in the Old Testament, the way of being included into the people of God for men was through circumcision. The sign of the covenant was circumcision. The sign here that you are part of the family of God, and God is no respecter of persons, is the waters of baptisms tell you that you belong. So I say to you at church at Wake Chapel this morning, you and we are the people of God. We've been called to engage by the Spirit of God in mission to reach out to the nations in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Maybe you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ. You've never confessed your allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King. He died in your place. He was buried. He rose again. And I summon you to declare your faith, to declare your allegiance in a new king, King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, your word is amazing and awesome. Your word is rich and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you, Father, that your spirit is at work in this world. Thank you, God, we don't believe in a deist deity, one who creates and abandons, but we believe in a God who comes near, who's transcendent but has become imminent in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that hearts would be tender this morning, that we would hear your spirit in the quietness of the moment, that we would be willing to respond, Lord. Maybe there is prejudice in our heart. Maybe we do think that all the foreigners are coming in and it's changing America. I don't know what it is, Lord. I know we are fearful at times, afraid of the unknown and afraid of those who are not like us. But yet at the same time, Father, we have to think beyond those cultural identifiers and to think about the story, the story of all stories of God, the creator God, reclaiming his creation. And in doing so, he's installed his son as king and he's summoning the nations. So, Father, here in Fuquay Verena, may we be with those, may we be those who are summoning the nations to confess their allegiance and Lord, confess, confess their allegiance to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So bless us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day that you have made. Lord, your creation alone is enough to cause every heart to turn to you and proclaim your majesty and power over all things. Lord, we thank you for those people who were able to be with us today to worship through your word and song and for fellowship and giving. And we thank you, Lord, for those who have come today to share with us their heart for the mission field that they have been placed. It warms our hearts, Lord, to know that these folks so dedicated to you are doing your will to share the gospel throughout the world. And Lord, we ask that you create in us a kindred spirit. But Lord, most of all, we thank you for, share, for saving our soul, for making us whole through salvation rich and free. Ignite in each of us a desire to share this life-changing truth with all we can come in contact with, that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.